This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the James Wilson Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today, we're delighted to be joined by author Michael Knowles. Michael recently wrote Speechless, Controlling Words and Controlling Minds from Regnery Publishing. He's also the host of The Michael Knowles Show, a podcast at The Daily Wire, The Book Club, a podcast sponsored by Prager University, and Verdict with Senator Ted Cruz. Michael's appeared regularly on the Fox News Channel and other major networks, and his writing's been featured at The Daily Wire, the American Mind, Fox News, and The Daily Caller. He's a graduate of Yale University, and he's lectured across the country. Also joining us on the podcast is Sean Tehan, one of our interns at the James Wilson Institute. Sean, why don't you get us started? Thank you, Michael, for joining us this afternoon. Uh, so at the beginning of the interview, we often like to ask guests to kind of state the raison d'etre for the book or article that we discuss. Uh, with Speechless, its timelessness seems self-apparent, um, you, but you clearly have an intended audience for your book, the vast majority of conservatives who think that things are now going in their direction, that they're on the side of free expression, what else could we need? Uh, but with your book, you are metaphorically gripping their shoulders and telling them, just saying you know, free speech absolutism will not save us. So please tell us what you're trying to do for this audience, especially our more conservative-friendly uh, conservative types. In some cases during my book tour, I have literally taken conservatives by the shoulders and shaken them and said, free speech absolutism will not be enough. You, you've hit the nail on the head. The, the book itself is a history of political correctness. That is what it tracks going back to the 1920s to the present. The reason I wrote it is because we all seem to agree that political correctness has gotten out of hand. We all seem to agree that it's one of, if not the most pressing political challenges in the country. Conservatives have been fighting this scourge for 30 years at least. And yet we haven't made any headway. <laughs> we haven't conserved any ground. In many ways, it seems that the harder we fight against political correctness, the more ground we lose. And so this is a strange question. And I don't think that anyone had given a satisfactory answer as to why that was. So I wanted to explore the the question a little bit. And what I came to learn as I was researching the history of this intellectual movement and its political effects, it was a very hard truth. Namely, that the left, I think, understands free speech and censorship better than the right does. So I think we conservatives like to flatter ourselves and say, we understand free speech and you leftists, you just don't understand it. But I think actually the left understands it better than we do. I think that their political theorists and activists have been much more incisive and effective at uh, advancing their agenda. And I think that if conservatives want to be able to impede PC or regain any ground, could you imagine, uh, we, we need to learn some lessons from them because I think, I think political correctness lays a subtle trap for conservatives. So I don't mean to be too harsh on them, even as I take them by the shoulders and shake them. And the subtle trap is this, PC sets out to upend society's traditional standards. That I think is the purpose and function 
of political correctness. And so when conservatives react to PC by declaring themselves free speech absolutists or something like that, by, by abandoning standards altogether and saying that you ought to be able to say and do whatever you want whenever you want to do it, that ironically actually plays into the hand of political correctness. Even if you're saying, I'm not going to go along with your new speech code, by abandoning standards and speech entirely, you're actually giving the left what it wants, namely the destruction of traditional standards. And so I think that uh, PC has progressed to the point now where the restrictions on speech, on perfectly ordinary speech, you know, saying that a man is not a woman, saying that uh, a baby is a baby, uh, saying that George Washington was a good fella and America is a nice place. The restrictions have become so very intense. I, I think that we are losing time. I think there is still time, but we're, we're losing our opportunity to change course and, and try to regain some ground. So, Michael, one of the, the test cases that also serves as a nice historical um, comparison is the you know, 1977 case that eventually reached the Supreme Court of the Nazis marching through Skokie. And yet at, at that point in the, in the 70s, the ACLU was defending the right of the Nazis to march through Skokie. But now it seems like the conservatives would have adopted the ACLU position, and now progressives would counter the Nazis marching through Skokie. And so is your position that you know, the progressives now understand the actual contours of speech more properly, or is it that they've almost stumbled onto the problem with free speech absolutism in that um, uh, in order to reject the Nazis, we must be free to choose the Nazis, um, in the words of Dave Hamlin, the ACLU's lead lawyer at the time? I hate to take a less than charitable view of our, our friends on the left, but and perhaps there were individuals who really did believe a lot of the slogans that they were pushing, not just in the 1970s with the Skokie case, for instance, but, but in the 1960s as well with the free speech movement at Berkeley. But I think in practice, the left's embrace of the open society, academic freedom, free speech absolutism, I think it was instrumental. I don't think it was a timeless principle that they were adhering to. I think that they recognized that it offered them the best opportunity to advance their political agenda, which involved the upending and, re, and then resettling along their own lines of standards. So for instance, you, you see this now, forget the ACLU even for a second, at Berkeley, California, UC Berkeley, you had the free speech movement in the 1960s to permit all sorts of radical ideas and activism on campus from the left. Today, when Ben Shapiro shows up to UC Berkeley, the cops need to shut the city down, $600,000 in security fees. The campuses don't want him anywhere near there. It's one of the worst uh, universities for free speech in the country. What changed? Did, did everything just, did they, did they lose their timeless principles? No, I think what happened is actually what the godfather of political correctness, Antonio Gramsci, called for all the way back in the early 20th century. Namely, the infiltration of all of the institutions, the unsettling of all of the standards, and then the resettling of standards on their own terms. This, this is, in Gramsci's words, the, the process of attaining cultural hegemony and waging a war of position whereby you go in and you, you, you gradually take positions of power and then you have wrestled the common sense and you've wrestled the culture from the, the previously dominant force. The, the 
Probably clearest example of this was in the 1970s with the second wave feminists. The second wave feminists, kooky as they may have been, made some very important points when it comes to political tactics. Probably the defining essay for that movement was by Carol Hanisch, and it posited that the personal is the political. This essay described the radical New York women's groups that would invite otherwise happy, complacent bourgeois housewives and and uh, stay-at-home mothers to come to their meetings. I refer to them as wine and cheese soirees with an H after the W. And the, the women would go to the meetings happy and they would leave furious because they had discovered during the meeting how oppressed they were. They had had their consciousness raised to use uh, some of the lingo from the era. And uh, the point that the New York radical women's groups were making is, is that our personal activities who washes the dishes, what kind of sneakers we wear, or the, what kind of foods that we eat, and the way that we relate to one another in an otherwise private way, that actually carries political significance. We don't think that it does because we all just agree. We all happen to agree on these, these certain matters, which is why they don't come up for debate. But their point is that the current consensus is, consen- is conservative. And so what you need to do is, is open up every aspect of life, including the most intimate, the most private, truly who does the dishes and who does the laundry, open that up to public scrutiny so that when all of those previously settled standards are open for debate, they can be resettled along lines that are more advantageous to the left. And I think that's what happened with the left's embrace of free speech. And and frankly, as an instrumental matter, I think that's what conservatives are doing today. Uh, Conservatives never defended academic freedom. For goodness sakes, the conservative movement began, at least in the post-World War II era, when William F. Buckley Jr. wrote a book making fun of academic freedom. (laughs) It's called God and Man at Yale, (laughs) The Superstitions of Academic Freedom. He called it a hoax. Now we pretend to defend academic freedom, uh, but nobody really believes a Nazi should be able to teach sociology at Notre Dame. Frankly, I don't think that a communist ought to be able to teach uh, certain subjects either. Uh, but, but we all believe that there are taboos. We all believe that certain things are off, off limits. If a Nazi shows up to the water cooler and starts yelling Zig Heil at his accounting firm, it won't, it won't be cancel culture when he loses his job. And so I think we need to recognize that just as liberty has limits, all speech regimes have limits. And we, we need to learn the lessons from the left in how to shift those limits back into a place that I think is not just more advantageous to us politically, but is just and right and good and true and beautiful. And I think those are very trenchant remarks, particularly about the uh, the long march through the institutions being the uh, first and foremost principle. But just, just to, to clarify, um, Michael, how would you advise a conservative, maybe even a conservative lawyer, to articulate a case against um, allowing the Nazis to march through Skokie you know, in an ideal environment? I would do so very, very carefully. <laughs> To quote Anton Scalia, I had the privilege of meeting Scalia a couple of times when I was a student, and uh, we asked him during one of these meetings, uh, Mr. Justice, how do you uh, r- reconcile, for instance, stare decisis with the original public meaning of the Second Amendment? How do you reconcile the the gun control limits that you will accept in today's society with perhaps what ought to be the much broader view of the Second Amendment in an ideal world. How do you make sense of all of these things, Mr. Justice? And his answer was very, very carefully. And so what I would recommend is uh, that we apply a, a long forgotten virtue, probably the defining conservative virtue, which is 
jurisprudence, uh, what I would recommend is that we uh, look to what has worked in the past, what has led to flourishing in American life, uh, what free speech has meant, not in the abstract floating in thin air, but what it has meant in the actual tradition of the United States. And so you, you bring up the example of the Nazis um, having their little march or something. To me, that is, is not the first area that I would go after. I don't think that the Nazis pose a particularly grave threat in the United States today. I don't think this is a major social problem. And uh, even if the ACLU has changed its position, who cares what the ACLU thinks? What I would go after is something a little bit more modest. For instance, obscenity. From the very beginning of our country, no one ever thought that obscenity is somehow protected by the First Amendment. Actually, as recently as a dozen years ago, the federal government jailed a pornographer for nearly four years just for obscenity, not for any other crime that he had committed. Uh, We still have obscenity laws on the books. In the late 1990s, you had a Republican House, a Democrat Senate, a Democrat president pass not one but two laws trying to curtail obscenity on the internet. One was the Communications Decency Act, which we're all talking about right now because of its Section 230 and its implications for big tech. We forget the point of that law was anti-indecency provisions uh, for, for the internet. And unfortunately, courts then gutted the central provision of that law. There was another law passed, the Child Online Protection Act. It went even further. It didn't just go after indecent material. It went after any material that could appeal to the prurient interest. And that still had bipartisan support. And again, the courts held it up until, until it just basically went away. Uh, but I, I think that you know, thank you to Justice Potter for reminding me that you know it when you see it. If, if, we, if we could simply assert the standard that we shouldn't have widespread, hardcore, filthy, violent, ubiquitous pornography everywhere, and maybe that we should regulate it in some way, and maybe that we the people actually have the capacities of reason and faculties of moral conscience and the political right to, to curtail those sorts of things, I think it would restore our confidence a little bit in, in, in terms of setting the standards, because there will be standards, there, there will be taboos. That is true of every culture in the history of the world and certainly in the United States. The only question is what are those standards going to be and who is going to set them? And for the past at least a couple of decades, if not longer than that, the right has basically ceded that field to the left, which is why the standards have gone so wonky. Um, yes, so continuing on this point, um, so legally you say that we should uh, start focusing on senities and enforce all these traditional limitations on speech under the First Amendment, but how does uh, like a normal conservative, like myself, a student on a college campus, start clawing our way back into the culture without just fighting PCness for its own sake? Because it seems like this has to reach some sort of golden mean between free speech absolutism and no law means no law on one hand, and on the other hand, uh, the other excess being fighting or being edgy just for the sake of being edgy. This is a very important point, and you, you see this problem in the culture of owning the libs. And let me tell you, just as a preface here, I love owning the libs. I think owning the libs has a very important place in political discourse, but you have to own the libs with a purpose and you have to own the libs within limits. And you do not want to accidentally own yourself while you are owning the libs. And so the example I see of this was some some years ago, a student, a conservative student was protesting uh, safe spaces and all this sort of silliness where <laughs> a, a student, a liberal student hears uh, an opinion that 
he doesn't like. And so he has to go into a room with coloring books and puppies. These things really happened. And so this student was, was making a mockery of this. And, and in order to do that, he wore a diaper and started dancing around outside to, to show people how silly this was. But of course, he hadn't made a mockery of the safe spaces. He had only made a mockery of himself. He'd only made himself look ridiculous. Or I think even of Gavin McGinnis, whom I love. I, I think he's a terrific guy and he's extremely intelligent and funny. Gavin McGinnis founded the Proud Boys organization, which has had some troubles and it's changed over the years. But the, the central maxim of the Proud Boys was that they were Western chauvinists. And don't forget, Gavin is a comedian. He's a very funny guy. And so I think that this statement is intentionally hyperbolic. Nobody really wants to be a chauvinist. Chauvinism comes from Nicolas Chauvin, this sort of legendary French soldier who was maimed and had all of his limbs chopped off and took a million bullets through him. But he loved his country so much and Napoleon himself gave him all of these awards. It's this excessive love. It's this excessive pride. It's this excessive care for, for one's own. And so I recognize that the, the Proud Boys are coming into this because we're now in a culture where we're told that the West is terrible, America's awful, it's a terrible, no good, rotten place, and you ought to be ashamed of it. And so the Proud Boys are coming in and, and they're going exactly in the other direction. But you actually don't need to be excessive. You don't need to be hyperbolic. You can simply have a proper love of one's own country. If you're going to deride leftists for their ridiculous safe spaces, you can do so in a way that does not make yourself ridiculous. You can, you can actually stand by a standard. And I think this is one of the dangers of, of the free speech absolutism is that people attempt to be shocking just for the sake of being shocking. They, they attempt to transgress even what would be their own moral norms. Uh, just to show that that we are are so open-minded, but but to go back to William F. Buckley Jr. when he he had a debate with uh, Leo Chern on his on his program Firing Line in 1966, they were debating the future of McCarthyism, and uh, I think a lot of people in the audience were horrified to think that there might be a future for McCarthyism. And what what Buckley responded to was this question about the open society. Leo Chern said, "Listen, Bill, you and I, the open society is essential to what." we both stand for. And Buckley said, no, it isn't. I don't want society to be much more. I think it's quite open already. I actually want society to be a little bit more closed. He said, I am an epistemological optimist, uh, an unfortunate phrase by which I mean, I think we can know things. And I'm not saying that we need to throw the Nazi and the communist in prison, but I, I don't see any reason to keep them out either, that we actually can settle certain questions here. We all, we, we must do that as a society. All societies do that. The only question is, what exactly is it that we're going to cancel? Actually, to use that example, in the 1950s and 60s, early 60s at least, you could be canceled for being a communist. Today, really, you can be canceled for not being a communist. All cultures are going to cancel, but, but what is that standard by which one is canceled? It's a great, it's a great line from your, from your book, Michael, and by forcing conservatives to kind of reconcile their, you know, obeisance to uh, process because of a belief that those processes are truly neutral um, and therefore um, impartial and virtuous, um, I think it flies in the face of lived experience. And so um, that's been at the heart of our work at the James Wilson Institute to show that, you know, process cannot ever take precedence over substance. Process is important, but the substance, the ends to which those processes are oriented, um, is of course um, the most important 
characteristic. So I want to demonstrate for our listeners a certain kind of kinship between what, Michael, you've done in your book and what I and uh, my colleagues, uh, Hadley Arcus and your pal Josh Hammer, we did in a statement earlier this year criti uh, criticizing conservative jurisprudence, a better originalism. So I want to play a quick game of guess who said what. So this is passage one. Conservatives quibble over procedure, but they largely leave the substantive issues alone, even when the public largely agrees with their beliefs, such as the cultural pull of political correctness. In the end, many, if not most conservatives, cede legal abortion and mass migration. They simply advocate a different mechanism for achieving the same left-wing end. Here's passage two. But our substantive concerns cannot be narrowed to the sole purpose of ensuring fair or neutral procedural rules, as though democracy is all procedure and no substance, as though we were free to choose genocide or slavery so long as we did it in a democratic way with the vote of a majority. But neither can those ends be reduced to the purpose of maximizing individual liberty or individual autonomy, as though liberty and autonomy were simply good in and of themselves, regardless of the ends to which they were used. Well, for our listeners, Michael wrote the first passage, but that second passage sounded a lot, uh, a lot like what Michael wrote in his book. And that second passage was from A Better Originalism, uh, released this March. So, Michael, what do you make of these arguments about um, you know, process for process's sake and believing you know, in any kind of outcome as long as it goes through um, a quote-unquote neutral process? I have to tell you, I had a hunch that the first one was mine, but you have to remember, it's been a while since I wrote this book. It's been at least six months, no, more than that now, seven, eight months since I sent it in. And I, I, I was a little uncertain also because conversations with Josh Hammer and other people helped to form some of the arg arguments in my book. And I'm just so pleased to see it because the kind of work that you all are doing, the kind of work that you're seeing spring up from other th uh, from Patrick Deneen, actually, also at Notre Dame, or uh, from from other thinkers around the country, I think is is mercifully now putting an end to this really desiccated, hollowed out conservatism. I hesitate even to call it that of the past 20 years. The problem, of course, is that uh, free speech in the abstract doesn't mean anything to people who don't have anything to say, and uh, you will often hear this from conservatives, they'll say, well, Michael, you see the left, when they are in positions of power, they wield that power to their own political ends. So goodness, if, if we did that on the right, why that would make us no better than they are. <laughs> and I think, well, so you've described the procedure pretty well, but actually they're, they're uh, different, different in terms of what they're actually doing. <laughs> we, we seem to forget on the right that uh, it matters uh, not only how one can speak, but what one actually has to say. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I think it's, uh, it's a sad turn of events that's happened. And as I, the reason I keep invoking Buckley here is just to remind people that it didn't used to be this way, e even for much of, of 20th century conservatism even much of late 20th century conservatism. You, you didn't see this weak, feckless uh, loser sort of <laughs> losing the dignity. Matt, Matt, Matthew um, Peterson of the Claremont Institute calls it the principled politics of loserdom. Yes, that was a, <laughs> it's a beautiful a way to put thing, it. Yeah. The principled politics of loserdom. And it's funny because the people who practice it very often aren't all that principled. And I find mm -hmm. they don't have very much dignity, but at least they pretend to. And uh, but this is a relatively recent turn of events. And in, in part, it may have to do with the influence, the outsized influence of libertarians on the conservative movement. 
might have to do with the brief triumph of neoconservatism, whatever that means now. I don't even know that word has been so defined and redefined. But I, I do think that if if we really cannot articulate uh, the, the good and the true and the beautiful, if we really cannot discern between true and false and right and wrong, then we're totally lost. I think probably the climax of this debate was David French's preposterous assertion that drag queen story hour is one of the blessings of liberty, which would make uh, James Madison roll over in his grave. Uh, I, I want to be as fair as I can to David's point. What, what he was saying, and we'd heard it for 20 years, is that if we tell perverts that they can't jiggle for kids at the library, why then the left might tell us we can't go to church on Sunday, which First of all, as a practical matter, they've already been telling us we can't go to church for, for the better part of a year now. But, but even just as a, as a broader matter, if you really can't discern between a, a pervert twerking for a toddler and a pastor preaching the gospel, then you have embraced a skepticism so radical that I don't think you have your faculties of reason. I don't think you have your moral conscience. And so you don't, you don't have the capacity for self-government, which this is why John Adams says, that the constitution demands a moral and religious people. He wasn't, he wasn't being a Bible thumper, he was far mm-hmm. from it. It's just a fact of self-government. He's, he's just making a, a perfectly descriptive statement. And uh, unfortunately, you, you, you would have imagined that, that it would have been the right wing that would have stood by the old order and the old standards. But, but we seem to have been, been utterly hollowed out. And now the, the only confident players in politics seem to be the radical left. You know, we're we're coming up, I think, towards towards the end here. Um, uh, we would be bereft if we didn't note how your conclusion to your, not that we're telling our readers to speed ahead to the last few pages, but um, your conclusion really crests beautifully. Um, and uh, some might call it a tour de force. Um, I might use another French phrase, a, a cri de coeur, uh, for conservatives to change the path they've been on lately. Um, you, you talk about how conservatives cannot treat free speech as an end in and of itself, as if that's the entire uh, coherent worldview that they're putting forth. Um, you're calling for a higher set of ends that conservatives must articulate, uh, namely um, speech ordered towards human flourishing and the good. How do you make the case to our friends that this vision and conception of free speech is something higher or better than what they've understood it to be now, though? Um, I think I think maybe you know the argument is is at once prudential that that they're making, um, but to show that you know the prudence that they are relying on, uh, it might be a mirage, or at least that's my thought. What do you think? Well, it would seem to me that whatever prudence our free speech absolutists friends have suggested has has been reckless. It's been rather imprudent because it hasn't worked. We haven't conserved anything. Uh, we haven't conserved the women's bathroom, for goodness sakes. T- today, it, forget about even the distinction between men and women, which we're no longer allowed to acknowledge on social media platforms in many cases, in public discourse, in boardrooms, in classrooms. But if you even make the more modest claim that we perhaps ought not to inject little kids with cross-sex hormones, you will face repercussions. Uh, not yet legal, I suppose, in all places, although there are, there are some laws speaking to this in, in other, in various spots, but certainly you can face professional reprisals. You will face social reprisals. I mean, just the fact that the three big tech companies control 90% of the flow of information on the internet, the flat, the fact that they control our public square, that is by definition, a political act. And, and so 
uh, clearly this, this neutrality hasn't worked. It's illusory. And, and it always was. It's preposterous to think that I can teach any book I want in a public school. I can teach Robin D'Angelo. I can teach Mein Kampf for that matter. The one book I can't teach is the Bible, the most important book ever written without which Western civilization doesn't make any sense. That doesn't, that doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem very neutral. The idea that I can engage in all manner of religious liturgies in school. I will engage in an Earth Day celebration, for instance. I could uh, engage in some radical racial and gender theories, which are which are thinly disguised religious views. In the case of transgenderism, it's just the Gnostic heresy being taught in public schools. But the one religious liturgy I can't engage in is prayer to God <laughs> if, if I'm in a public school. That doesn't seem very neutral to me because, of course, secularism and liberalism are not neutral. They come with their own claims about, about the metaphysical world, about the nature of man, about his relationship to the state. And, and that is inescapable. And when we, when we talk about the virtues, which we do so rarely these days, it's important to remember that courage is a virtue and courage is actually the prerequisite of, of all of the other virtues. Uh, without courage, one cannot enact any of those virtues at all. And so I think we need the courage and the confidence to to say what we believe and, and to actually believe things because surely what, what we have been trying to do has not worked. And so even if you are skeptical of what I consider to be a fairly modest course correction, uh, though, though it would be, I think it's an urgent one. Uh, if you're skeptical of that, just look at what we've been trying for the past 20 years. And I think it, it is impossible to conclude that what we have tried uh, makes any sense at all. If, if, we, if, if we hope to conserve anything, we are making a claim on the good. We are making a claim that there is such a thing as the good, that some things are better than others, that we can know something about that, that some things are true and some are false and some are right and some are wrong. And, and so if we're already willing to acknowledge that, then I think it's incumbent upon us to, to articulate and enforce that in politics. And I think the failure to do so owes at this point to, to little more than cowardice. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, before you go, I would like to ask one last question about uh, your discussion of Brave New World in 1984, um, Aldous Huxley's and uh, George Orwell's respective dystopias. Um, you seem to favor Huxley's dystopia, and you call it a more incisive prophecy of our present politics. However, a lot of the speech codes uh, mentioned throughout your book seem a lot more 1984-esque. Um, for example, I, I often think about uh, during the confirmation hearing of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, she used the phrase sexual preference. And yeah. uh, prior to that, sexual preference uh, was not defined as a derogatory term. But then simultaneously, as she said the phrase and was chastised by Senator Hirono from Hawaii, the dictionary itself changed to make it a derogatory term. <laughs> so what is the interplay, do you think, between these two novels? Uh, do you think the left... Uh, and progressives use 1984 means to achieve the ends of Brave New World? Or vice versa, actually. I think they, they use, uh, gen I mean, they use both. But generally speaking, I think they favor the, the means of Brave New World to achieve uh, at least one end in particular of George Orwell. And that would be language. The Orwell's book is a book about language. He says that Newspeak is Ingsoc, and Ingsoc is Newspeak. So the, the politically correct crazy jargon uh, is 
is actually the entire English socialist regime. And the purpose of that is to limit not just what one can say, but even what one can think. And ob- obviously that is a, a prophecy of political correctness. And it's, and it's an observation. Pro- let's not forget prophets. It's not that they just have crystal balls and they're seeing the future. What they're really seeing is truths about their own times that other people are missing. And so this is a, a fact of politics and a fact of language. Uh, I think though where Orwell goes wrong is he believes that the, the tyrannical regime will rule primarily through fear and harsh punishment and, and those sorts of methods. When in fact, I think that the way the left has conquered our culture is much more through promiscuity and drugs and appealing to our licentiousness. And, and you just have to look at the 1960s to the present to, or even frankly, a little earlier than that, to, to see that happen. I think what the left did pretty brilliantly is they conflated liberty and licentiousness uh, the the idea that uh, freedom is the ability to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it, which is obviously preposterous. It would it, that, if that were true, it would mean that the heroin addict is the freest man in the world as long as he's got a couple bucks in his pocket. Uh, they've conflated that with true liberty, which involves tamping down your base passions, taking da- tamping down your lower appetite, bringing it into accord with your rational will. I mean, let when when for instance Saint Paul says the things I do. I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. Uh, he's not just babbling incoherently. He's describing the idea that we have two wills. We have the lower will, which is the appetite, and we have the higher rational will that we are conscious of. And the rational will traditionally is understood as mediating between the appetite, which is at the level of an animal, and the divine will, which is perfect. And our rational will is is trying to bring bring these things into accord. So liberal education, traditionally understood, is how we make sense of our liberty, how we train ourselves for our freedom so that we actually can be free men and women and citizens. And probably liberal education does not, does not accomplish that anymore. But before the left could, could really Im- impose these sorts of speech codes, could really censor us, take away so many of our political rights and traditions, I think they had to first make us a less free people. And that was a process that began with the revolutions of the 1960s and are, and are continuing today. Uh, so I, I don't mean to denigrate either Orwell or Huxley. Uh, they were not only friends, but Huxley was, was Orwell's teacher. And in a letter to, to Orwell, Huxley said, you know, good job, George, but I think I got mine a little bit more correct. And I think that's true too. Well, Michael, um, uh, we wish we had uh, a little longer to chat with you. Your book is just so, I think, so uh, t- uh, timely and um, it, it, it really serves a, a, you know, a great need on the right in uh, equipping, especially, you know, a, a new generation of conservatives that's open to um, something more robust um, than what's been on offer. Uh, the book is Speechless from Regnery Publishing. Michael Knowles, thank you so much for being with us on our podcast. Um, we hope we can have you back in the future. Well, thank you so much. Pleasure is all mine, gentlemen. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.